the infamous villain Jay Dyer. <laughs> Jay, I, I, all right. So let me just tell you how I even know of you. So I think, I think I really first heard your name in conversations on Lofton's channel like years ago. Like when you, I guess you were having debates with him a couple of years back. And then uh, I, I watched like one or two of your videos, but then I saw a conversation with you and Peugeot where you guys were talking about the liturgy. It was it was a really interesting conversation. I may even play a little clip from that tonight because I want to dive into that a bit. But um, then I caught you on TimCast, and I'm like, this guy has like a wealth of knowledge of the deep state, man. Holy cow. Like, And then you, you host the fourth hour on Alex Jones, right? Yeah, pretty much every Friday for about the last, uh, say, two and a half years, I've done the fourth hour. How did you get that gig? <clears throat> I'm trying to remember how that happened. Um, I think Alex was aware of me for a long time because I remember calling in to his show uh, maybe in 2007, like a long time ago. I called in to Alex, maybe even 2005 or six. And uh, back then, I, I remember writing a couple articles for Infowars back in the day, kind of going against the New World Order um, even then. And <clears throat> I had a small blog at the time. And uh, so I think Alex knew of me, but... <clears throat> um, they had me on, I think, two and a half years ago after I don't I think maybe I'd just done a couple of kind of big interviews. And so I was back on their radar and they asked me to come on. I was like, yeah. And Alex really liked the interview and it went really good. And then they were like, hey, why don't you just, you know, fill in host on the fourth hour? So I was like, yeah. And then that that led to a lot of other, you know, open doors. So it just kind of happened through just, just doing this for so long. How old are you? I had to think for a second. <laughs> 40, uh, three or four, I think. All right. So you're around my age. Okay. Yeah. You're like my older brother's age. Um, all right. So, all right. So how did you even like get into, was it from watching Alex Jones that like sent you down that rabbit hole and wanting to check all this stuff out? Alex played a pretty big role in, uh, kind of my phases of waking up to stuff. When I was 18 or 19, I was an evangelical Protestant dude. And I, <clears throat> I was reading a lot of, um, like, uh, you know, the John Birch Society is. Have you heard of that? No. Wait, it's, okay. like a, it's like a Protestant evangelical, um, kind of a classic uh, 60s, 70s Cold War thing that was very anti-communist. Okay. And so they got a lot of things right, and they were they were kind of on the right trail, but then they got kind of demonized, and they, they kind of got um, locked into... Uh, People are asking about the red background. Yeah, so uh, we were joking before that, since I was coming on a, a Catholic podcast, a lot of the cat, the track cats, Sam KGB. So I thought I would just, <laughs> I thought I would just uh, do the red to, for my Lord Putin. So Lord Putin sent me an email and said, uh, do everything in red for your communist overlords. So <laughs> I'm assuming you got a lot of your fans in here tonight. Cause I, I think uh, I see people I've never seen before. People with the Rothschild and their last name and stuff. So, um, all right. So, all right. So you grew up Protestant and then what, yeah. what you, you actually were Catholic for a bit, right? Yeah. Long story short, I was raised uh, Baptist. I got into pretty hardcore Calvinism in my uh, early twenties <clears throat> or uh, late teens, early twenties. Um, went to Bonson Seminary, uh, Bible College and Seminary for a little while, and then decided I, I was doubting Protestantism. Uh, then I got into Roman Catholicism in two thousand three. So I came into the Roman Church two thousand three. Um, that was most of my 20s, Roman Catholic. I pretty pretty quick got into Tricat stuff, too. So I was a strict Latin mass goer. I uh, went to the SSPX mass for about seven or eight years. 
Um, and then <clears throat> uh, I had a phase where I was getting more and more doubtful about the papacy. So I kind of had a SATA phase, but I, I still went to the SSPX mass in that SATA phase. So even though I had the opinion, I, I viewed it like I had the opinion of SATA, but I would still get sacraments at the SSPX. So yeah. that was for, I don't know, a while. And then um, I just kind of got, felt like I was done with Rome, started looking at orthodoxy, started looking at even perennialist stuff, uh, neoplatonist stuff. I was questioning and kind of reading a lot of different religious things and um, kind of a long, slow process. I, I almost came into the Orthodox Church in 2007 and for various reasons decided not to. Like I went through the whole catechumenate and I was going to get married to a girl. Long story short, we didn't end up getting married. Then I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not ready to become Orthodox. So I basically just kind of didn't do anything for a while in my 30s. And then probably around around 2014, I got back into going to church and reading the church fathers um, and then became officially Orthodox. I was going to Orthodox church, but I still wasn't a member. I uh, was received in 2017, 18. So that's that's when I officially got into Orthodox church. But I've been reading and studying, you know, Eastern church fathers and Orthodox stuff since 2006 or seven. So. What, what was that switch liturgically like, like to go from um, like from from going from the Roman right to go into what you're Ro your Roman Orthodox? So, I mean, uh, uh, Russian Orthodox, right? Yeah, my first experience, though, was uh, Antiochian liturgy, which Antiochians are Arabic influenced. So <clears throat> um, I remember the first time I went, everybody remembers the first time they go to a divine liturgy. It, it was very uh different in spirit i mean you know we have in the orthodox church we do have the western rite which is basically the old latin rite done in orthodox churches um but so so i wouldn't say that it's completely foreign you know to our experience in terms of the spirit of the of the west but i did notice from going from the sspx latin mass for so many years and then my first experience of the divine liturgy i just felt like it was a lot warmer uh, and I don't mean that as if I think that the Western right isn't good. I'm just saying that yeah. it's just kind of a different atmosphere. Uh, you know, a lot of Orthodox churches, for example, you know, it's sort of like a lot of them are, if you go to a Russian church, a lot of them are wood. <laughs> so it's like everything's mm -hmm. wooden and there's a lot of uh, kids. You stand through the whole liturgy. So uh, there was a lot of differences and a lot of things that I found uh, amenable. So, but it, it was different for sure. Totally. <clears throat> I'll be honest. The only exposure I've had to orthodoxy is you and Peugeot. And so, some of the stuff Peugeot talks about, like just, the, I mean, I don't know if that's particular to orthodoxy or just the way he thinks with the symbolism and stuff. Like it, it really like he, he, he's helped me like really see things like he's, he's opened up a spirituality for me that like, I, I never really thought about before that. And that, um, that yeah, Russian, He's great. That, that Russian movie, The Island. Did you ever see that movie? I did. Yeah, I like that movie. That movie's amazing, dude. It's like it's just about like a like a a weirdo monk who just like he's he's the fool basically, you know. He's the but fool, it's like, and uh, the Pharisees hate him. Yeah, <laughs> it's basically like. But what it made me realize is that like the the that the East because I never looked into like orthodoxy whatsoever, but it it's like I really understood that like you guys understand holiness the same way we do like holiness is something protestants can't grasp it's like they really have that concept of once saved always saved there's you no mean like the process of sanctification 
Correct. Yeah. Like there's no progression in their spiritual life of there's no concept of theosis or divinization or anything like that. So it's like I really do see the East as like the second lung of the church, kind of like John Paul said, you know, even though despite the problems in Rome and stuff. I mean, this isn't going to be a debate, guys. So if you're thinking that's what it is, I just I'm just trying to give Jay an idea where I was coming from. But OK, so now you 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 come into orthodoxy. Now, when do you start? Oh, uh, so the, the Alex Jones stuff. So you wind up calling into his show and then you wind up getting that Friday gig. So now, well, besides- I, I, I called into Alex maybe in like 2005 or six. So that was a long time ago. And then they invited me on uh, in 2019, I think. Oh, okay. And uh, so I just came on for like an interview and Alex really liked the interview. And then um, his producer was a fan of, of the stuff that I do. So that was part of the reason. And then then I was just like, hey, I had a good time, too. So, you know, if you need a, a fourth hour host, I'd be happy to do it. And they were like, yeah, sure. And then it turned into a thing where it was like, you know, the audience resonates. They like your stuff. So, yeah, just just do the fourth hour on Friday. So it's it's been two and a half years. So it's it's been a lot of fun. What made you start diving down these rabbit holes? Like, cause I've heard you go, I mean, even when you were on Tim Pool's show, like I heard you going into things and I'm like, oh wow, I thought I knew some stuff. But like, even uh, you were on with Pearly Things yesterday, or a couple of days ago, I guess it just aired yesterday. You, Gordon, and a couple other people. And you were talking about the CIA actually being behind the sexual revolution. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't understand. Like, I understand the idea of the CIA doing color revolutions in other countries to try to put their own government. What's the idea behind them doing it in America? Yeah, I think a lot of people have the idea that that's an institution that exists uh, to protect America's national interests or that they're kind of a, a, a pseudo a quasi conservative institution. And, and they may have had some right wing minded people, but overall, it's not a right wing institution. It's not a conservative institution. In fact, um, somebody uh, just wrote a, a essay recently that I, I put up uh, in a foreign affairs journal talking about the history of the CIA as a an institution interested in preserving, quote, American values, but not a conservative institution. And what that means is that liberalism, neoliberalism, all the things that we think of as uh, liberal in the sense of utilizing uh, women's rights, utilizing uh, uh, human rights campaigns as a cover for uh, more powerful interests, right? Um, What we could call the corporate elite or the deep state, et cetera. That's really what it represents. And so a lot of people think that also another misconception is that this institution is there to, you know, defend uh, America on the front lines against terror or something like that. But really, it's an institution institution that's dedicated to media and legal and uh, culture control. And so there's, this is a really crucial element to that institution that a lot of people don't know about. And that's why so many famous actors, philosophers, writers have worked for and been employed by sometimes covert and sometimes overt uh, fronts and operations. So the the thing that you're talking about was uh, the admission that, uh, for example, Gloria Steinem, the famous feminist, wasn't a CIA asset. And she's that's admitted it's all been public and declassified. And that's why that uh, essay that I put up from that uh, CIA person was saying that, you know, Gloria Steinem in, in the middle of the culture wars was saying, this the CIA is not the enemy. They're not the bad guys. Right? They're pro uh, abortion. They're pro skittles. They're pro all this stuff. Um, even that, you know, if you if you watch that clip of uh, 
Yuri Bezmenov that everybody likes to share. If you watch the full interview, Bezmenov goes on to say that the poor Eastern European uh, people under Sovietism weren't allowed to be openly Skittles. So, I mean, he actually mentions in that interview, like the pro-liberal Western values, which I'm not saying that make, that makes communism good, but I'm saying that the admissions uh, are tremendous, you know, in, in these, these sites and in, the, in these uh, sources and these scholars. Uh, another thing I put up is from Frances Stoner Saunders. She's a famous Cold War historian, and she wrote a book called The CIA and the Cold War uh, about their influence in arts. And they had a whole project called the uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom. And um, you might think, well, but weren't they fighting Soviet tyranny? Well, they're fighting Soviet tyranny with Western liberalism, which means abortion, uh, you know, Skittles rights, all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, anti-family, all that kind of stuff. So that's what it really means. And they had, you know, this last point here is just that they had recruited through this front, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which had a lot of money put into it by the elites. They had recruited like all the most famous Western artists, writers, philosophers. So not just Gloria Steinem and Miss Magazine as a CIA front, but also things like Playboy Magazine were given CIA money. Uh, abstract Art, uh, Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol all also got this uh, this money from the CIA front. So that's who's really kind of in the background of a, not everything, but a lot of the, the culture. It's funny because like you watch. All right. So <laughs> I think about how much my like my my paradigm has shattered since Trump. Because before Trump, like, I mean, when, when I tell you, like, I believed every conservative narrative there was, like, I was a Mr. 9-11, exactly how it happened. Like, I thought, like, I literally, oh, I think how naive I was. <laughs> it's so bad. But now, like, now I'm questioning the moon landing. Like, does, is this legit? Do you think the moon, the moon landing was real? <laughs> so uh, I'm a, a skeptic on a lot of these things. Um I, I don't like say, oh, uh, I know that this didn't happen. But what I look at is the arguments, the evidence and the, you know, things that I'm supposed to bo- look at that tells me that that's what supposedly happened. And yeah. if I don't find it convincing, then I don't feel like I'm bound to it. For example, um, you know, I think Robertson Jenis has some really good points about geocentrism. Me too. Um, I, yeah. So I, I, I'm open to those kinds of things. I'm not into the flat earth stuff, but. Uh, I do think it's legitimate to quite a, to, uh, to uh, <laughs> birds aren't real. Uh, no, I think birds are real. Um, <laughs> I think it's okay to question things like that, that are big psyops, because there's a lot of things in the story that don't make sense. Like, you know, the later missions where we're playing golf on the moon. Uh, I'm, I just find this can be to be completely absurd. And, and really playing golf on the moon is really bound up with all of the narrative of going to the moon. And you can tell it's very clearly a psychological operation because you wouldn't endanger your whole crew by uh, playing golf in this kind of situation when, you know, you could easily with the slightest error, you know, screw up your, your, your suit or whatever. Uh, if you go into the technology involved in all that, I mean, I, I won't go all down that rabbit hole, but you know, there's good reasons to question it. Um, if you look at the moon rocks, this is mainstream news, like the moon rocks that are supposedly given, they've all been shown to be fake. They're from earth. So the yeah. rocks from the moon are not really from the moon. That's mainstream news. Yeah. Uh, the story, I mean, people don't even know that NASA says that we've lost the technology to go to the moon. So we have the most advanced technology supposedly out there with AI and cell phone technology or whatever, but we've lost the tin can technology to go to the moon. They've also lost all of the footage. Imagine the most uh, important event ever recorded on film. 
Uh, and this has all been lost, they say. This is what NASA says. People don't know that. I have a hard time believing anything they tell us now. Like even this whole thing that they're trying to, I mean, I really think you could see the hallmarks of, of a psyop coming with the whole aliens thing, like from, from like a million miles away. It's like, so like, I really see, especially with evolution, like I see evolution as a creation myth. That's all it is. It's a creation myth. Like every culture has to have a creation myth. Evolution is a creation myth. And this alien narrative really just solidifies that evolution myth that oh look we even have life evolving in other places and stuff and it's just you'll have one guy come out and he'll say oh i saw the ships and then the cia comes out and goes no no no, this guy's lying we don't know what he's talking about it's like literally hallmark characteristics of a psyop yeah i've gone pretty deep into that story too in the background to it and the intelligence connections to the whole alien mythos uh i wrote about that in the first book that i did in 2016 and then i wrote about it more in the second book in 2018 um, and there's a good book by the Collins brothers uh, on this. It, it's a they did an 800 page, 900 page book, but there's a 300 pages in the middle of it that's just about the alien psyop. And you know when you go into the history of this, and I, I don't, I can't go into a lot of it because it's really long. But you know we've done a lot of podcasts on it. But you know when you get to figures like Alan Dulles played a key role in his uh, interference and kind of um, going after anybody that would question George Adamski's story. And Adamski is really important because he's one of the first uh, so-called, you know, abductees that had this experience of being taken on the crowd. And this, and he's important because he begins the stories of the narratives of abductions, right? Um, other people who have this story, Betty and Barney Hill, I mean, everything about their story is sus. They become crazy cult leaders. Uh, and, and, and none of their stories really match up or make sense. They're all, uh, you know, very dubious. And so why do we have the CIA director running interference for uh, George Adamski, the first of the abduct? It's just, it's just bizarre. So from the very outset, we see, you know, the intelligence operatives very clearly involved in this, this narrative of the extra uh, terrestrial entities. And like I put in my second book, there's a declassified uh, Brookings Institute document from I think 1968, which says that if we were to release the narrative of alien life, if we were to announce it, right, this is one of the big think tanks doing a, a research paper for NASA. They said it would disrupt the Western Christian values. So even in that document, they're admitting that it would have these sociocultural, you know, impacts that would really damage, uh, you know, Western civilization from a religious perspective. Yeah, it would shatter people's faith. Like it, it really would. I mean, there's very few people who wouldn't fall for the for the psyop now. Right. So there's there's been stories about the CIA, uh, I mean, not the CIA, the FBI, like uh, spying on Catholics and stuff. Do you think that that's going on in all religions? Like, because I, I really th- uh, like I've heard you even talk about like the CIA, their involvement in Vatican II and things like that. Like, do you think they're just keeping an eye on all religious groups or do you think it's really just specifically traditional Catholics that they're looking at? Oh, I think that the intelligence agencies, as well as the government think tanks, Pentagon, uh, they're interested in what they call full spectrum dominance. And <clears throat> that means everything. So that's everything from uh, TV to music, pop culture. They're interested in everything. Doesn't mean that they literally control everything, but they're absolutely interested in it. And, you know, religion is one of those uh, key elements of society that's part of culture. And there's a long history, for example, of a lot of people in the church, the various groups, various churches. Um, working in intelligence. So, you know, this is a form of what they call soft power. So, for example, if the United States government wants to um, 
extend its uh, influence and, and, and reach in another country, let's say Iran or the Ukraine, they want to make alliances or they want to have groups there in those countries that they put money into to have what they call soft power. And religion and churches, uh, and not just churches, but other religions as well, they're, they're very much a part of that. And not, but not everything is soft power. There's also, you know, black ops. There's also, uh, you know, spies and, and this kind of thing, too, because a lot of what you mentioned earlier, the, the Islamic stuff, you can go back to the history of, say, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, they have a well-documented scholarly history of being closely tied to, if not created by British intelligence. So British intelligence is an old imperial model of you want to control or at least steer um, not just the public liberal groups, but also the radical groups. And a lot of times radical groups can prove to be very useful for a power or a power block. Um, and again, I, I've done lectures on this. There's uh, Robert Dreyfus's book on this called Devil's Game, Mark Curtis's book, Secret Affairs. These are really high level uh, analysts who have done uh, scholarly research on this very topic of utilizing various religious groups and so forth. And uh, you mentioned Vatican II and the CIA. Uh, it's a really good traditional Catholic writer named David Wimhoff who has the the big fat book on that. I, I recommend every Roman Catholic should read that. He's he's a trad cat, and uh, he basically just documented the geopolitical uh, powers that really wanted to steer the Roman Catholic Church in a certain direction. And I'm not knocking the Roman Catholic Church alone because it's the same model that influences Protestantism and, and Orthodox. Yeah, no, I've I've heard like I'm that's not even like a, a doubt in my mind. Like I I I absolutely think. I mean, you have a you have a a meeting of the Roman Catholic Church bringing all, like, of course they're going to want to steer the direction of those documents. How oh, yeah. successful they are, I'm curious. Like, like how? Well, I mean, I guess that depends on you know what degree of uh, uh, you know that depends on how you how you interpret Vatican II. So you know, you you guys know there's the spectrum. There's people who think that it could be read, read in a conservative way. It's misinterpreted. There's people who think that it was subverted. Um, I eventually came to the conclusion that I, I did. I don't think that it's consistent with the pre-Vatican II teaching. So that's what it led me first to the SSPX and then eventually to SEDA and then out of the Roman Catholic Church. But um, yeah, I think that documents like Nostra Aetate just to me they just they don't comport with anything to do with the you know the the, the traditional encyclicals that you would read from like the Morari Voss or Lamentabili or uh, Pacendi of Pius X. I mean, you can go on and on and on with those. Uh, trad encyclical you have that book i'm sure this one right this uh popes against the modern errors right yes <laughs> yeah i mean i think that you know if you to me it's just like i finally came to the conclusion that you know the documents of vatican ii just don't match up with that so you know how a person grapples with that uh, uh i think that just from my perspective when i was a trad cat i didn't know about any of this geopolitical stuff i mean i knew a little bit of conspiracy stuff because i was reading some of it, but, but as I got into my later twenties and thirties, I got more into that than, um, you know, medieval, the I was really into medieval theology and Thomism and all that in my twenties. But, uh, so in my thirties, I got really deep into that side of it just because I got, I came to see that this is a really important piece of the puzzle, whatever your view <laughs> is, right. Whether you're Roman Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox, and it's an important piece of puzzle, not because it explains everything, but because this affects all of us, like, so if you're Roman Catholic or you're a Protestant or you're Orthodox, this is an angle that a lot of people don't understand the influence of deep state actors, NGOs, think tanks and foundations to steer the church. 
And when you read that Wim Hof book, like he gets into the model of how they put money into these foundations, who the players were, the doctrinal warfare program, and how they put money into, say, universities and seminaries and say, look, we'll put money here. Like the Rockefellers did this, for example, uh, to the pro. This is how the Protestant churches in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s can went completely liberal. It only took a few generations. How was how did that happen? Well, very wealthy people would go to various seminaries and say, I'm going to give you $10 million in 1950s money, right? Yeah. We'll build you a, a giant new seminary. However, we're going to put this guy as the head of this department. This person yeah. teaches here, right? So mm-hmm. these grants, all this kind of stuff, that's how they gradually sort of erode the more traditionally minded people. They weed them out. And, uh, you know, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of Catholics have written books on uh, how they made the clergy skittle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Bella uh, Dodd, you have that whole thing happen. Right. Yeah. Um, she talks about getting communists and and rainbow, you know, whatever, getting them into the clergy so that they could actually infiltrate. And they wind up getting them working their way up to like cardinal it like they get that high up and then what happens is once you have people in positions of power that high now they're the ones who get to choose who comes up and it just becomes one big yeah factory at that point and it's like even if you're orthodox like what happens in the catholic church affects everyone because they are the church that converted the west and we live in the west so it's like that domino falling for them is such a big one that it, it will affect everybody regardless of what tradition you're actually in yeah, I mean, and, and uh, it gets complicated and, and complex in terms of uh, s- certain people and events. But, you know, if you look at, for example, the ecumenical patriarchy, it, it was declassified not too long ago uh, that the OSS and CIA had ba- were basically telling the ecumenical patriarchy what to do. And the cables that were going back and forth, <laughs> the EP was saying in the Cold War, basically, we, we do whatever you say. Now, some people might think, well, but w- what's the problem with that? Because we've got to fight the commies. Well, but now you have a new master, right? And so by the time of 19, uh, you know, 70, 80, 90, 2000, if your new master is telling you, hey, uh, you guys in your church, you got to kind of ease up on this Skittle stuff. You got to ease up on this abortion stuff. You got a new master, right? So, <clears throat> and I don't doubt that uh, <clears throat> some of the Belladon stuff, I think might be a little exaggerated. I think it's there's some truth to it. Um, I read quite a few accounts of, like to what degree the NKVD uh, and all that had infected the the Vatican and the West. I've been to Orthodox Church too, right? I mean, the KGB they they created they tried to create a, a parallel uh, Soviet Church in Russia, for example, right? The KGB Church. But one thing I would say that a lot of people don't know about in this domain is that uh, just just to give it a little bit of charitable nuance. A little bit of charitable. <laughs> I, don't, I don't detect a lot of charitable. You, you want to know what's funny before you even go into that? It's like for for all of the, uh, the, the people he's come after, it's like I've never seen East and West unite better than when <laughs> – and when he goes after them, it's like me and Jay met because Jay saw my Michael Lofton response video, and that's that's how we wound up coming on. Yeah, I watched so. the whole video. Yeah, I, just, I was like, "Hey, I had a I had a similar experience." <laughs> oh, and by the way, uh, you were talking about that uh, initially back when I went on uh, Reason and Theology. It wasn't there was one debate with Law, with Ebara, but the there was nor- just normal chats with Lofton. Yeah. So it wasn't a debate. We were just kind of having conversations about, hey, what what's your take on uh, Palamism and this kind of stuff? 
And then uh, there was behind the scenes stuff that turned it sour that a lot of people just didn't, they didn't have access to They thought I was just trying to be mean to the guy, but no, there's stuff going on. I I don't understand the, um, like, uh, like why it's a problem to disagree with somebody and still remain. Like, I never understood that. It's like, okay, we disagree. And like, why, why does that mean you have to not like each other now? It's a weird thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. About the the communist stuff. stuff, The one thing I want to say on that communist stuff is, um, so there's there's distinctions amongst the communists, which I got pretty deep. Not I'm not a communist, by the way. It's, I'm just being silly <laughs> with a red light. But I got pretty deep into under trying to understand this whole stuff because I was studying in university under a guy from the Frankfurt School. Now, not directly, but he had studied under a guy who studied under Habermas. So Habermas is kind of the most recent famous, uh, you know, guy. Benedict the Sixteenth did a book with Habermas, oddly enough. But so this helps us understand because you might think, well. The CIA and the OSS, for example, in the Cold War, they would hate the Frankfurt School Marxists, right? No. The OSS and the CIA brought the Frankfurt School Marxists to the U.S. to help learn culture warfare. And this is when you start to see the Frankfurt School people like Adorno and others put out that book, uh, uh, The One Against uh, Families. Uh, I, I always go blank on this. I just covered it like two nights ago. I forgot the book. Um <laughs> Anyway, it's, a, it's basically an attack on uh, male-led families. Yeah. And the, the argument of the Frankfurt School guys was that the the dad in a family represents uh, a, um, a a fascist, right? So, in other words, familyhood is inherently fascist. So, this is what the CIA and the OSS are starting to warm up to and put out in the Cold War. So, you have to understand, yes, Stalinism and Sovietism and the NKVD we're not amenable to a lot of the people in the West. And that's why the, the uh, and I'm not saying Stalin's a good guy. I don't believe that, but that's why the CIA uh, aligned themselves with the Frankfurt school Marxists. This is uh, cultural Marxism, right? Yeah. This is where it comes from. And that's why people get confused on this. Cause they think, well, now wait a minute, how could you not like, uh, you know, Bella Dodd's testimony? Well, Bella Dodd is talking about uh, the NKVD, and I, I I do know that yes, Stalin and the NKVD did compromise uh, bishops, priests, uh, and they would use they would do sexual compromise, right? So that did exist. I don't know to what extent at that time Stalin was successful in getting um, hum- Skittles guys into the Roman Catholic priesthood, but they would typically try to compromise people in any way that they could. Usually, that's something SEX Yule. Yeah. Um, so it's very plausible, but I, I don't, I'm not sure about those numbers. I think they might be a little bit exaggerated, but it doesn't really matter. Because yeah, it, does, that, it does sound a little crazy. It'll the bad like, guys are really, uh, above this kind of fray and they're the people that are really, really rich. I mean, the Rockefellers, for example, said that their main goal, uh, with their attitude towards the religious stuff would be to get the Roman Catholic church and the other churches to alter their stances on morals. Yeah. And so they'll use whatever means are necessary to try to do that. But mainly it's it's foundation money and this kind of stuff. But then it gets into the more, um, you know, honey pot, honey trap stuff where they will compromise bishops. They will compromise people with with uh, Whitney Webb type stuff. If you're if you're familiar with her book. Where, where do you see all this heading? Like where, like 
I mean, it really feels like we're coming up on like the end of something. Like, it's like, it really feels like everything's kind of escalating. I've heard somebody say like, they don't think we're going to have an election in 2024. Like I saw a video of some guy the other day saying like, things are going to escalate so bad. You'll see like the war in, with, with Russia and Ukraine will escalate to the point where they'll go, oh, we can't have an election because of wartime and this and that. Like, do you really see America as like losing its foundation to stand on right now? I do. I don't know how bad it'll get uh, before election time. I think that typically the the elite have kind of like multiple cards they can play. You know what I mean? So they probably have a deck and they, they could throw it. I always have my Illuminati card deck here as a joke, right? But so like if, if, you've, if you've ever seen the Illuminati card deck, right? Like they can throw down like a, a banking crisis, right? <laughs> they right. can throw down. I didn't even uh, know those exist. If it's not, a, if it's, if it's not going to be the war, it'll be another pandemic. It could be uh, global. They could expand the war. They could have another fake uh, scam. And but don't forget, uh, Klaus said that. I mean, in the last few months, Gil Bates and all these people were talking about a new pandemic. That's possible. But then cyber remember, pandemic. remember, he was talking about a cyber pandemic. That's what, I said. That's what I was about to say. So remember, Klaus said, cyber polygon will be far worse than this COVID-19 crisis. So, yeah, I think uh, if you look at cyber polygon, that's definitely one of the cards. You, they could you, play. Do, you, could, you do a good Jordan Peterson. Nobody does Jordan Peterson as good as Jim Bob, but I'm working on it, trying to get it better. <laughs> well, you've got, well, you've got Klaus there. What's that all about? Well, I don't know, but. It doesn't bode well, you know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's like I, I'm. I I mean, they really just like broke my brain over the past couple of years, and I'm just like, it just feels like everything just keeps escalating to the point where they had these Canadian fires, right? And I'm in New York, and when I tell you the, the sky was orange, it looked like your your studio. I yeah, I saw that, and I'm like, this just doesn't seem natural. Like this seems like it seems like something where they think we don't. We don't buy the climate change narrative. So they're saying, oh, yeah, you don't buy it. We'll show you what climate change looks like. And I, I don't I mean, you'll never convince me they're not doing it on purpose. Well, there's a lot of uh, documentation on uh, G-O-E-N-G-I-N-E-E-R-N-G. That's a real thing. Um, yeah. Whether they did it in these specific cases like that, I'm not 100 percent positive. But like you said, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but it's a real thing. In fact, uh, you know, I've been talking about that. I put that in my first or second book. I've been talking about it for a long time. And I cite the actual papers from uh, Stanford Research. Uh, they have a whole what they call ELF, VLF uh, Research Laboratory, HARP. All these things are real. And you can go back to cloud seeding. They were doing that in World War II and in Vietnam. So cloud seeding is a form of this. And they've only gotten more sophisticated with the ELF, BLF stuff via HARP and HARP's old tech. So that it's very sophisticated stuff now. And uh, it was all in mainstream news, like what, last week that Biden is going to black out the sun? I mean, yeah. they are admitting that they want to do geoengineering. But that means when they admit it like that, that means they've already been doing it. In fact, John Brennan, the CIA director uh, from that horrible Jesuit school, by the way, yeah. Brennan, uh, he gave a talk several years ago. I put it, I think I put it on Twitter, um, talking about it being real and that they were already doing it. It's insane. And then, so like, if you really, <clears throat> when you, when you look at everything going on in the culture and you see everything happening in the church, it's like, I mean, I really see it in, in typologically, like when you really look to the first century, when Christ comes that first time, what you have is the hierarchy colluding with Rome to crucify the Messiah. And what we're really looking at 
right now is something similar where you have the church colluding with this new governmental entity to really try to upend the church right now and stuff. It's just, it's just wild how all these things are lining up in the church and in the world. And it almost looks like they're trying to form Babylon again to get this one single power. Yeah. Well, they've been talking for a long time about creating a controlled and steered uh, world religion. So for example, you can read back to Auguste Comte, who's the founder of uh, sociology. He's one of the earliest to promote post in uh, French revolution, rather than trying to eradicate religion, what the elite should do is create a new world religion. Uh, so Comte writes about that, and he calls it uh, a, a civic religion. And then you get people like H.G. Wells, uh, one of the architects of the NWO, openly. Uh, he wrote a book called God, the Invisible King, where he says that we need to have a future New Agey world religion. And he says that it'll worship uh, Lucifer as a symbolic figure. So he's not, I don't think he's saying that there's a real being called Lucifer. Maybe he thought there was, but... He says that this uh, world religion needs to um, just kind of be a cloak and a cover for a technocratic world government. So the religion exists really to just kind of mind control and and, and direct people to the technocratic state. So when Bertrand, I mean, uh, when uh, 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 Aldous Huxley wrote Brave New World, he was he was in the circles of all these people. So he knew what the people that HG Wells was writing for the Milner Fabian circles that I cover in this really good book. I recommend this book. If nobody's read that that's or, your, or seen that's it. your book, no, it's a, a Romanian historian, historian named Johan Ratu, but it's about what I'm talking about, how this uh, Fabian socialist elite, they want to create this world government, but they also want a world religion that goes along with it. So they realized they would have to capture all the major, you know, hubs of Christianity as well as the other religions. And so I see, um, you know, what, I don't know what y'all's view of Francis's multi-faith center in Abu Dhabi is, but I see that as a, an example of, uh, you know, a future potential world religion. And it's not just Judaism, Islam, and, and uh, Christianity. They want to have, you know, all of these cults kind of blend into it. But Huxley wrote another book called Perennial Philosophy, where he says this as well. He says, all the religions should kind of blend into this future world religion. Um, but I think they definitely had to, to co-opt the Roman see, uh, and, you know, they easily co-opted the ecumenical patriarchate, at least in the 1930s or forties by the CIA. Well, you can see, listen, like I was saying this the other day, like there's, if you ask anybody, if you all right, give me one Christian moral principle you disagree with that doesn't have to do with the pelvic issues. Like, Try to find one. You won't find one. Nobody in the West or in the East anywhere. Nobody will say the golden rule is wrong. Nobody will say, like, don't point the speck out in your brother's eye. Like, those are all things. You can't come up with a single Christian moral principle that people will disagree with until you get to the sex stuff, right? So they kind of want to keep the golden rule and get rid of the other stuff. And I really think that's what's happening in the – like, and I think it's happening. It's not just in, in Rome. Like, I, I see they're playing around with it in – in Protestantism and everywhere, oh, yeah. they're trying yeah. to make it where we have this acceptance of the Skittles stuff. Because once you, once it just becomes, just don't judge anybody. But they, it just doesn't work. You can't like you. You're upending all of Christianity when you get rid of the the sexual ethic. Yeah, I could think of one other. I'm not just trying to be contrary, but uh, another issue that irks me that comes up, and this is uh, Protestant, Orthodox, and Roman Catholic, is the death penalty. Um, I think 
the Bible and Christian tradition clearly teaches the death penalty. Yeah, hundred percent. So for you know Francis and for a lot of the Orthodox world to say, oh, we believe pacifism and the death penalty is against the gospel is just a bunch of baloney. Um, but that's another one that bugs me that I think people uh, are pressured. Yeah, you're right. Pay. Yeah, so it's They're the, the public issue, and it's, and it was the death penalty issue that they they they've confused being pro life. Yeah. It, they, they, f- they fail to understand, you know, we're pro-life for innocent life, but like, yeah, like people, people can exactly. forfeit their right to life. Well, it's uh pro-life, but uh, I mean, there's a difference between killing and murder, mm-hmm. right? Uh, sometimes it is necessary and good to kill. Uh, in fact, Athanasius says it can even be virtuous, but it is not always the, the I mean, there's the, I think it's uh, St. Cyril of Cyril and Methodius fame, when he was debating with one of the Muslims, the Muslims said something to him like, uh, you Christians are wrong because Jesus told you never to take a life, uh, but would you not uh, take someone's life to save your wife and children? And St. Cyril says, no, that's actually an act of virtue and love. So I can lay down my life in self-defense for somebody else. And that's the greatest act of love. So it's not contrary to the gospel, you know, to have the death penalty. And again, everybody East and West knew this up until, I don't know, the 1960s when people decided that, oh, this is like, you know, we got to be pacifists. That's just ridiculous. But I mean, you'll notice that it's the same time period when all of the morals start to crack, right? So everything that that you would think of as kind of a quote, traditional moral, whether it's marriage and family, uh, SEX stuff death penalty, um, self-defense, like all of that has to go. And you can easily see that it's a technique of emasculating. Because once you emasculate, you can you can just take over. That's 100% true. It's like one, once men are unwilling to be men, that's right. it. Like we, we covered a story the other day uh, about priests in um, Georgia, in the country Georgia, who put an end to like a pride event. Like they went in the the year before a guy burned himself alive on, on the conservative side saying, I don't want to live in a country that promotes sin. And he burned himself alive like that. I mean, you think like in the West, there's anybody that would be willing to do something like that. But you you still see like a very strong priesthood in in the east still and when you get out of the west like i could never imagine the clergy of the west getting together and actually putting an end to one of these things because they'd be terrified yeah um a lot of reasons for that i mean one of the things that wim Hof, for example in his book on vatican ii that he's critiquing is that the the influence that a lot of these elites and foundations and and, and groups and universities had uh was to promote Americanism. Yeah. And so they wanted to, t- during the cold war, the CIA wanted to turn the Roman Catholic church into a form of Americanism foreign soft power. So in other words, let's think of us, ourselves as, uh, you know, being in the, in the Pentagon, uh, we want to extend American influence and American ideas and the, the four freedoms. How do we do that? Well, we got this institution called the Roman Catholic church, which influences a uh, potentially a billion people, right? Why don't we turn that into an Americanist institution? That yeah. was one of the key motivations that Wim Hof uh, demonstrates in the book, utilizing you know, uh, people like uh, Henry Luce, John Courtney Murray, the famous Jesuit who was working with the CIA to do this. And so uh, Murray basically, yeah, exactly. Americanism is the boomers' favorite religion. And they were successful in getting all the boomers to buy into this. So a lot of people in the West, in any church, as you're saying, 
They're American first and then Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant second. Americanism is the real religion. And that means freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, uh, neoliberal economics. That's what has to be extended first and foremost. All this religious stuff is secondary. Right. Well, you you can see you can see <clears throat> the church used to <clears throat> go forth and baptize all nations, right? Now <clears throat> you saw instead of us going and doing that, you saw especially in George Bush, uh, George W's language. He's like, "We're going to go spread democracy. We don't spread Christianity anymore. We go and spread democracy, right? right? Like that's a, like that's the new faith that they go and they yeah. spread. It's almost like the new evangelization is really spreading Americanism." It's a, it's a religion. Yeah. Democracy is a kind of a pseudo religion and it's, uh, you know, again, very amenable to the reason it's amenable to Americanism is that America's focus, its spirit is, uh, enlightenment values, ec laissez-faire economics, um, and pleasure principle, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, happiness being ultimately basis desires, right? So then enters into the principle of libido dominandi and the possibility of being controlled by your passions. Yeah. Uh, the Orthodox use the word passions. It means the same thing in, in the Roman Catholic Church's concupiscence. So basically, we can control you through these lowest common denominator desires. And so the, uh, the, the West basically took church values and submitted them to the, the Americanist state values. And and that's what I think you see going on in like Dignitatis uh, Redintegratio, and then the one on uh, the the Vatican II one on uh, religious liberty, um, all of which in the prior condemnations of religious liberty were based around the notion of like quas primus, uh, the supremacy of Christ in the state too, right? Yeah, yeah. you can't have Christ you can't dethrone Christ in the state. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like we we had we, the the idea of separation of church and state was never. I mean, first off, it's preposterous. But once you have leaders who no longer have Christ as their king, you could see how quickly what like once a, once a mind falls into mortal sin, especially people that were formerly Christian, it's like once a mind falls into mortal sin and they just have their their intellect is so separated from from grace that you could see like as a nation how far we're diving away from christian principles at this point to now we have our government from up on high forcing this stuff down on us i mean i just don't see how god i mean if you look back throughout scripture and throughout salvation history when a people especially a, a you know a people who once served him turn away from him like he intervenes at some point i mean i don't know how much longer we could get by without an, an intervention from god agree yeah i think god still does uh blessings and chastisements i mean i don't think we always know you know how that's coming about and what's going on exactly but i do think that 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 does happen and even if you didn't believe in god or you set set aside the theological stuff i mean just from a practical perspective like you can't have everybody skittles t-r-a-n-z you know going insane basically and a society functioning right it's going to just yeah. on a practical level it'll collapse yeah, it's crazy. Um, and you can see, like I, we were saying, the, I was talking to Rob about this the other day, like everybody thought AI was going to be like these machines that come in, like Terminator 2. Like so Skynet, yeah. Yeah, but what you're really seeing is it's algorithms manipulating people because they're in 
such immoral positions. They're so easy to manipulate. Like libido dominandi is a real thing. These people are being manipulated by algorithms and you're getting them to go and do crazy things like that girl did when she went and shot up the Christian school because she's just getting fed this stuff and she has no grasp on real reality. Yeah, I think uh, if you look into the <clears throat> people at MIT that were called, uh, oh, they had a name for that whole group of people that were studying uh, um, Norbert Wiener and they were studying uh, cybernetics. They came up with this concept of the feedback loop and uh, social media actually literally develops out of this MIT Norbert Wiener uh, feedback loop stuff where they realized that they could feed you like the more that they got about you in terms of information, more text, more images, right? They could figure out things about you and then they could decide how they wanted to steer you in certain directions. And so, like you said, based on the information, the profile they have of you, then they can, you know, start gradually through the algorithm steering you in, in a certain way. And we all know this on the basis of the advertising algorithms, right? Yeah. You talk about something, the ads pop up on your phone the next day. Yeah, That's an example of this, just an advertising. But there's a deeper perspective, which, believe it or not, the, the new uh, uh, Mission Impossible movie, uh, Mission Impossible 7, um, it's actually about this. It's about the algorithms, like, steering, controlling people in this, like, mass psyops way. But there's been a ton of uh, social media um, tech dudes that were whistleblowers, like that Jason Lanier guy. Like he he was saying this four or five years ago. He was saying that this the, all the social media is just engineered to steer you psychologically in a certain direction. Yeah, I really see it. I mean, I really see it as if if we create this entity that because I I just think people will worship it. It's going to be yeah. It's going to and you did you see that uh, that talk by that uh, the World Economic Forum guy, the the skinny guy, where he was talking about how these new chat bots, like they'll be able to give us new scriptures and yeah, like, new, what's his name? Noah Yuval Harari. Yeah. yeah. Like he's talking, he's, he was literally saying like that we're going to, they're going to give us new scriptures and we're going to have new religions popping up. And he's right because people are psychotic. <laughs> they're going to actually fall for this crap. <clears throat> yeah. I think there's something um, about the idea of, incarnating uh, a pseudo divinity that will appeal to people. Right. But, that, mean, but that's, 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 yeah. that's idol worship in the ancient sense. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Like, it, like it'll be like the most convincing idol basically. Like ever. And people will bow down and worship this thing. It's going to be, it's going to be wild. What's coming down the pike. <clears throat> um, I wanted to ask you before, before we go, cause we got like 10 minutes left, but like, do you, uh, are there Eucharistic miracles in the East? Like, you know how, you know how uh, Catholicism has like Eucharistic miracles where they test it and they find out the blood, like, cause I know you guys have bleeding icons or weeping icons and things like that. Like, what are some of, uh, do you guys have like miracles? Well, like, I don't like know. That? I've not, I mean, I've not heard of a bleeding icon. I know we have merch streaming icons. And then I think sometimes they give oil, but um, believe it or not, the, there's a difference in our view on uh, that issue. So in the Orthodox Church, the, the canonical norm, what most bishops is, is if something like that occurred, they would actually stop the liturgy and not do anything. So they would actually not pronounce it a miracle because in the Orthodox Church, there's a, there's a different view of miracles where we tend to be immediately skeptical and concerned about prelast. And that's the typical attitude when any kind of thing like that has happened to where they'll reserve judgment for a while uh, because the danger is that it might be a, a delusion. 
Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a very different <clears throat> approach. Yeah, because I've seen icons weep oil, I think, right? Like, I, I know that's a thing. <clears throat> but, yeah, it's, uh, and then I th- I feel like there was a, I feel like there was a, a an Orthodox girl in Damascus that actually got the stigmata, but she might have been Catholic or maybe, maybe like a Byzantine Catholic or something. I'm not sure. Yeah, as far as I know, it's not in the East. Every now and then, there's a, like you said, there's some there's some claims that there might have been one ever, uh, but I, I don't think, I think that it's very foreign to the way that we conceive of the process of theosis. So even though we do have in common with the Roman Catholic Church, the idea that there's the uh, purgative stage, the illuminative stage, and then the union stage, we, we agree with that because that's in the that's in the church father. It's like the first thousand years of spirituality. Yeah. <clears throat> One thing that we disagree on is that <clears throat> stigmata is typically something that happens post-schism. Uh, and a lot of those uh, manifestations for the Orthodox Church, we don't see those as, as valid manifestations. So we don't we wouldn't typically go with that. Oh, OK. Um, what what going after you went east, how has your spirituality changed? Like, has there been has there been new things that like actually deepened your spiritual life, things like that? Like, what, what are some of the different devotions you do in the east? It is different. Um, so <clears throat> in the Orthodox Church, you get uh, your you have a more direct relationship with your spiritual father. Um, in the West, I, that would be probably your confessor, right? Yeah. Um, your spiritual father is going to be a lot more uh, attuned to knowing exactly who you are and what you are because you don't you don't confess in a booth. Yeah, it's it's not. It's walk, not okay, yeah. Let's let's get into you that. Walk up, you, you walk up to him at either uh, the Vesper service or the, the morning of the liturgy. And he puts the, the stole over you. So everybody knows you're up there confessing. Now, no, people aren't hearing it, but everybody sees you yeah. up there. And uh, so the, the, the deal with that is that he will always know it's you and he knows your problems and he will typically kind of attune um, his advice or penance, you could say, to your spiritual sickness. Whereas in the Roman Catholic Church, if you confessed in a booth, it's kind of like it's less. Um, it's, less- it, it's mortal sin. It's it's more it's more. Um, oh yeah, what, what would be a good word for it? Like because I know you guys don't look at it like you fall into mortal sin and you're and you're cut right, off from God's grace that, like that. We don't have that strength distinction. We see, sin is more like it's more like uh, an illness, and the doctor's kind of giving you the remedy. So it's like. You know, let's say you, uh, oh, I have a, a problem with, uh, uh, I don't know, drunkenness or something, right? Like, usually every vice has a corresponding virtue. And so the way that we treat the spiritual illnesses in the Orthodox Church, that you'll be told to um, combat that with the opposite virtue. So uh, sobriety, right? So sobriety would how, is how you could combat uh, that. If you're uh, lustful, you know, that's a form of gluttony and, uh, that would be combated with fasting and and sobriety as well. Um, if you're a miser, you would combat that with being magnanimous and giving. So it's, it's a lot different in that sense. It's like you're meeting a doctor basically, spiritually speaking. Um, whereas like you said, the Roman Catholic church is kind of like, you're kind of listing the really serious offenses and then then you're doing that. You're doing a penance to, uh, you know, to pay the the temporal debt. Um, Orthodox Church doesn't really have that uh, notion of indulgences, so it's different in those ways in terms of spirituality. Um, you also you'll you'll get like a prayer rule, which is different than uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. 
Um, we don't typically do the rosary. So a lot of times we, we pray the Jesus prayer. Um, I love the Jesus prayer. I'm trying to think of just other differences. I mean, <clears throat> um, yeah, those are like the main ones. And then, and, and believe it or not, in my, in my life, in my, uh, ex- uh past several years of orthodox believe it or not the bible is actually a lot more it's almost like i'm not saying that roman catholics don't appreciate or love the bible i know that they do um but when i was roman catholic my focus was typically um imagine like i was i got into imaginative prayer i was reading a lot of the uh you know the the traditions that focused on that uh, and and the monastics and spiritual schools and, and the roman catholic church that focused on that um, and orthodoxy doesn't, we're against imaginative prayer. So we don't do that. <clears throat> so that, that all had to change. And you're saying like, like mm-hmm. Lexio Divina, you would say like, Lexio no, Divina I mean, would be like, 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 a tradition, like the mystical tradition of imaginative prayer. Like you're supposed to imagine all of these scenarios, imagine yourself in hair, hell, like Alfonso Sigori has a lot of uh, sermons where he says like how to do imaginative prayer. It, it, it comes kind of, I mean, it exists prior to Ignatius Loyola, but the spiritual exercises, right? This is about yeah. the Orthodox Church. We are uh, guarded and concerned about imagination, so we don't try to do that. So icons typically take a more prominent role rather than the imagination in um, Orthodox prayer and and a direct experience, that kind of thing. So, so those those are some of the differences I could probably think of. Some other. And, and do you guys have to deal with liturgical abuse like we do? Because that was the the conversation you had with Jonathan. It was like. You guys, Jonathan brought up this very specific example, and it was in the UK. It was the bishop. He put like this helter skelter slide inside the cathedral, and he came spinning down the slide. And it was like the the symbolism of that is this he's like spinning down to hell. It's like, and I I know you guys don't deal with the the stuff we deal with, like with Novus Ordo liturgies and stuff, but do you guys have to deal with liturgical abuse going on in your, in your, um no so typically there's not liturgical abuse the the closest thing to that would be that the ep just recently had a couple female uh 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 no it wasn't the ep it was alpidophoros right so alpidophoros is the most notorious greek liberal bishop in america right and he not only did he march with blm he also had a uh he attended oh, a skittle, he attended a skittles wedding and then he had female i think he had female art, either acolytes or altar servers i don't remember what it was but that's the first ever to, to my knowledge but it's not as pervasive as what's going on on our no, side right to my knowledge I've, I've never seen that until him so i mean i'm sure you, you could you could you find see even some. like francis has the uh who's that patriarch kid he's talking to always uh He's always talking to somebody, the the guy that comes over. He gave him the bones of St. Peter. Who is that guy? Bartholomew? Yeah, maybe Bartholomew or something. Yeah, that's the when I say EP, that's the ecumenical patriarch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's yeah, I mean, in, in our in our view, I mean the EP and Alpitaforos, they're they're really close. I mean, they're basically they're basically our version of Francis. So yeah. It's crazy, man. <laughs> it's but, like- but but the EP, uh, just to be clear for you guys, like the EP is not ahead. No, yeah, yeah, no. He's, he's just not a, like our pope, but he actually. Yeah, no, I understand. We that. think he wants to be like a. Uh, <laughs> he wants. He wishes guys, he could be Francis. You guys have like autocephaly, right? Where every every diocese is its own. Is that what it's called? I, well, I'm not- some. Uh, so, in if you look at Ephesus, 
uh, Ephesus granted the church of the Council of Ephesus granted the church of Cyprus autocephaly, right? So this is a this is an ancient canonical practice in the canons, and then other churches later on uh, got autocephalous status. That just means that that jurisdiction is not accountable to, doesn't answer to, doesn't have any um, parentage from another, right? Yeah. Like uh, if if constant if Russia sent missionaries into um, you know, another country and eventually it became its own, uh, you know, big church, they might be eventually independent. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in the Orthodox structure, it's kind of like uh, equalized amongst the bishops, but then there's canonical privileges for certain bishops like patriarchs. But, but for us, there's nothing special for them other than canonical and a few procedural jurisdictional um pros they don't have any like spiritual stance above any other bishop all right where do you see everything headed man where do you see us in five ten years what do you what do you think i'm talking the world the church everything where do you see that where do you see everything going man because you seem to have a a very acute sense of of things that are going on more more than the average person well, I think they really want to push to bring in a lot of these uh, UN Agenda 2030 goals. So they want to try to get rid of cars. They want to get rid of, uh, you know, they want to introduce universal basic income. They want to introduce mandatory tracking, tracing, stabbies, no cash, uh, e-currency, CBDC. I mean, that's all they, they put all this out there publicly what they want. Um, so I think that the danger is that, you know, they might try to roll out some some big scams and operations to get us closer to those goals. I think the U.N. put out a thing today saying that um, they're behind schedule on their 20, 2030 goals. So they want to have austerity. They want to have uh, less uh, prosperity. They want it worse. They, uh, so I think the dangers are that might get us to those things. Like we said earlier, economic collapse, cyber polygon. Um, new scamdemic. I mean, those are all possibilities. Um, the church, I think the churches are really going to push for a, a false union in 2025. And if I was Roman Catholic or Orthodox, and I believe my tradition, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think this is a smart move. Um, yeah. Because I think we all know, yeah, we all know that like neither of these people, Francis and Bartholomew, they're not basing this union. They they, on truth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's based on expediency and this hippy dippy. Oh, we all love each other. And it's just not true. You can't have love without truth. You can't have truth without love. It's got to be both. Exactly. 100%. So that's yeah. what I think they're going to, they're going to, because that's the, the anniversary of Nicaea. So they really want to push this new false union, in my view, for geopolitical. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. yeah. No, they're, they're actually saying they want to have this new 2025 union, but it won't be based in truth. So it'd be, it would be silly. Um, and what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on civil war in America? You think we'll ever get to that point? You think people, I, you know, the, the only reason I, I say maybe not is because people are so addicted to their devices. Yes, they're so addicted to stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think people have like the, the, yeah. the, yeah. they don't really, yeah. Would they ever put their phone down enough to, <laughs> enough to do that? I, I, I think mean, people are so controlled by their libidos and their vices. I think that's the only thing that makes me hesitate and thinking there'll actually be any kind of violence. So exactly. Jay, man, this was fun, dude. You were, I don't know why everybody thinks you're such a villain, man. You seem like a very nice guy. <laughs> I hope we get to do this again, man. Thank you for coming sure, on. Anytime. Yeah, I had a great, I had a great chat. Um, yeah, we have some mutual friends too. I'm friends with Tim Gordon. I'm friends with oh, Joe Boca was on with you. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, maybe we'll do something uh, collaborative next time, well, man. I appreciate more, it. Let's do some more podcasts for sure. Yeah, thank you so much, man. It was it was nice meeting you guys. Everybody go check out Jay's channel. And uh, any of Jay's audience that wants to check us out, don't worry, we're not going <laughs> to... We're not going to... Uh... Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, share this and link you guys as well. I appreciate thank it, Jay. Thank Absolutely. you, man. All right, Rob, All right, take us out. Have a good out. night. Bye.